You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. In a sermon series um, called King and Crown, where we are walking, bless you, we are walking through the um, book of Mark. And of course, as we walk through the book of Mark, we are talking about the life of Jesus, but we're also talking about how our culture tries to find its identity outside of Christ. So I'm continuing in that series this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us as we read the text. Um, If you didn't bring a hard copy of the text with you, but you'd prefer to be in one, we do have some Bibles underneath the seat. So just search around and you can find it. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, you're welcome to take that one home today. We would love for you to just have access to the scriptures at your house. So if you don't have one at home, feel free to take one from uh, underneath the seat and take that home with you. Um, Again, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. So uh, if you turn there and when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Altheus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. Thanks for uh, taking the time to swim in this morning. <laughs> it's pretty rough out there, and it's getting bad again. But uh, for those of you who haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if you're a guest this morning, actually, if you're a member, thank you for coming out in this. If you are a, a guest, we want to definitely uh, welcome you in with us, and thank you for making, you, making us a part of your week. Um, our hope is, is always the same, week in and week out, that we would... We would make much of Christ in our, in our service, and those of you that haven't joined us would want to link arms with us in covenant membership moving forward as we press on to make the gospel unignorable in our community. And, and really quick before I jump into this, every now and again, I, I feel the need to just kind of press the pause button and say, hey, um, let's look at something together. Let's appreciate something together. And I think sometimes, whether it's our personal life or whether it's, you know, in the planning that, that 
we do sometimes for the church, we, we get so invested in, in the future, like what's next, what do we need to do to get to the next step that we, we don't always spend the proper amount of time appreciating what we have in the current moment. And um, I just, I said it after the first service, I didn't say it in the service, I didn't know what my time was going to look like, but there are times and today's one of those days that I'll, I'll just take a minute to really appreciate what we have with the musicians in this church and, and the people that lead. This is really, I have a brother who's a pastor in Round Rock, right outside Austin, has been for years since the church was planted, and they're, they're roughly the same age as we are and have kind of trended together with, with growth in the stage that the church is in. And he had a chance to visit here a couple of years ago, had a Sunday off, and he was down talking to mom and dad, and he came to church with us. And when we left, he asked me, and I didn't think much about it at the time, but he asked me, he said, hey, uh, what's y'all's budget for musicians? And I kind of looked at him funny. I said, what do you mean? He was like, yeah, I mean, you have con- clearly have contract musicians. Like, how much are you guys paying those people to come in and, and play on Sunday? And I said, we're zero. Zero's the number. And, and I had to, went on to tell him, I said, not only are we not paying those, there's like two other full teams of musicians that are performing at that level. So um, I, I just think it's an absolute blessing that we, we have that here. God's blessed us with that. You guys are supremely talented. So uh, from me to you, thank you for, for the time you guys put in, and I hope we all take the time to appreciate it. So... Jumping right into the scriptures this morning because we got 17 verses to cover. Uh, as Lauren said, we're continuing on in the book of Mark this year. Right now, looking at a, a portion of Mark where we are looking at Jesus' authority that sets him apart from the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. And, and specifically today, we're going to spend some time looking at Jesus' authority over sin, as you can see in the passages that Lauren read. And we've covered quite a bit so far in the early days of Jesus' ministry. We've seen, you know, Ty preached a few weeks ago about John the Baptist coming, announcing the coming of Jesus, and he introduced the idea of Jesus baptizing believers with the Holy Spirit. And then we see Jesus being baptized and led out into the desert to be tempted and resisting that temptation from Satan. And then it begins calling his disciples, which uh, we noted that was, you know, the guys he were calling were not necessarily the type of guys that would have expected to be called into that, that type of ministry with someone who was claiming to have the authority that Jesus had. Uh, and then last week, Court spent some time talking about the authority with which Jesus taught in the synagogue. And we saw in the scriptures that we looked at last week that that authority was so great that it was being recognized by those who heard. They actually were commenting on it, man, this is, this is abnormal. I mean, Jesus didn't merely teach and regurgitate traditions that they would have been familiar with, but instead he brought a, a new way of living that piqued the interest of the people as well as those who were in authority, and that created some friction and will continue to create friction as we move forward through, through the book of Mark. And, and because of this, because of the, the, the authority that Jesus taught with and the healings the court talked through last week, um, we see that great crowds of people began to follow Jesus everywhere that he went. And so much so that, that directly before this, at the back end of the first chapter of Mark, when Jesus, um, he cleanses the leper, he tells him, hey, man, don't go tell anybody what I did. Don't go talk to him about it. Follow the law, right? Go to the priest, do what Moses has commanded you, but, but keep, this, keep this to yourself. And, and we know from the story that that doesn't happen, and rightfully so, right? If, something like, if we saw something like that, I doubt very seriously that we would, we would just hold that in and not, not tell anyone about it, and, and the leper does that. He tells, tells everyone, so much so that the scripture says Jesus is not even able to openly enter any town without tons of people coming and trying to, trying to get to him. And, and right there in the scriptures we'll pick up this morning in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. But before we do that, let me pray for us, and uh, then we will, we'll jump right in. Lord, we thank you for this morning. God, thank you for, for the travel mercies you extended to those that 
God, out in this weather to come and, and be with one another as we worship you. God, I, I pray that, that you would just illuminate the scripture this morning. God, open our hearts and eyes and minds to what it is that you want us to, to see. Uh, Lord, just bless all of us that are here. God, convict us of sin, draw us to you. God, that we may be, we may be absolutely changed by the work that you do this morning before we leave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so jumping right into verses 1 through 3, I'll read those, uh, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So what the scripture tells us is that Jesus at this point has returned back to what becomes commonly known as his home base for his ministry right now. It's in Capernaum. And it says that it was reported that he was there, so people knew. People were talking about it. Hey, you know, I know you've heard the stories. I know you've, you've heard what this guy's doing. He's back. He's here. Word was out. People knew, and, and people were coming to be close to Jesus to see what he was going to do next. And Scripture says that there was no more room. There wasn't even room at the door. I mean, people were to the door. Uh, They're spilling out of the door into the outer areas. And one of the commentaries that I was using as I put all of this together and prepared for this morning talked about homes at that time and how those would have been single-story dwellings, and and a large one would have held roughly about 50 people. So um, regardless of how large your house is, if you've ever had 50 people in it, even though you might think that number doesn't seem too big. That's a lot of people. Some of you have 50 people in a home group in your house right now, and you're like, yeah, dude, that's just Thursday, bro. You know, like that's, that's legitimate. And, and this is what, what, we, what we see here, this crowd of people packed into the home, so much so that they're spilling out of the doorway. And, and what we can reasonably assume, and the scripture testifies to, is that most of these people were coming to Jesus to see the things that he was doing. There was a large portion of them that were coming to him for physical healing from some type of ailment. And then, like I said, there were the ones that were just there to see because they had heard, they had heard what was going on. And, and what, what I want to point out here that, that we see in the scripture is that Jesus' intention here was never to be known only for his ability to heal. So we don't necessarily see him healing here at the very beginning, but rather the scripture tells us that he was preaching the word to them. That This helps us understand the prioritization of that which Jesus was doing in his ministry. He's preaching to them because his main concern at the moment is proclaiming the imminent rule of God and the need for repentance of sin and trust in God. He could have very easily healed everyone there in a moment. All this healing goes out, it's amazing, and he moves on to the next set of people he's going to heal. But rather than just go that route, we find him preaching. He's, he's, he's talking about God. He's talking about their need for, for God, their need to repent, and their need to, to repent of their sin and trust in God. And as he's preaching, what the scripture tells us is that there's four men that approach the home, and they're carrying their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And look, look at verse 4. It says, and when they could not get near him, Because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So these guys have a friend that has physical ailment. He's he's paralyzed, right? He's completely paralyzed, unable to move, unable to do anything for himself. And these guys are so desperate to get their friend to the one who they believe could make him whole that they carry him there. They carry him in his bed. And when they get there, 
they can't get in. All, they're met with this crowd of people. So it's not like a concert where one guy can kind of snake through the crowd and make his way to the front. They're literally carrying a bed with a man on it and it takes four of them to carry him. They run into this impenetrable wall of people where they can't get into the house. And, and at this point, it would have been very understandable if they had turned back and waited for another opportunity, right? If they had said, look, this dude's doing this pretty regularly. He's moving from town to town. Like, we'll just catch the next one and we'll get there early. I remember when I was in, in high school toward the end of my high school days, I think, I, I, yeah, I'd turned 18 by this point, but my parents were crazy, and they let myself and my friends get on the road um, all the time and, and follow the band Creed around. Those of you, yeah, it's a true story. Those of you who've been around for a while know that, that I have a almost sick love for Creed and Scott Stapp and all of his disciples, um, and we did this regularly. Like every weekend, there was one point in the summer after I'd graduated where we were gone for like, I'm not exaggerating, like a month, all around the Gulf Coast from Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, all the way into Florida, and we would get these tickets. Some of you that have done this, you know what a pit ticket is. We'd buy a pit ticket, general admission only, to a space maybe the size of this room, that they were going to pack one and a half times the amount of people that could safely be in that space. And if the show started at 7, we were in line, I'm not, at 9 a.m. 9 a.m. because at 18 years old, it was incredibly important for me to be in the front where I could get sweated on while they were up there playing. And this is what we did. There was a group of four or five of us. And I, that's what I picture here is they come and they approach. I picture that, that type of crowd. And they could have just said, hey, we'll catch the next one. We'll get here earlier. We'll do this different next time so we can get in. But that's not what the scripture says they did. The scripture tells us they took him and they, they carried him to the top of the house. And they made a hole in, in the roof. Now, listen, I, I don't know if any of you have had a hole cut in the roof of your house before. Or maybe like me, you've recently had your roof replaced. What you find in your attic after they re replace your roof is sawdust and gravel from shingles on everything. Like mine's looked like that for about a year now. Just don't go up there. Just don't, don't go deal with it. And that would have been the case here too because when something like that is going on above you, that debris falls. And what we know about the roofs in this day, they were made from like mud and clay and, and sticks and probably had some sort of clay tile on the top of them. So these guys are up there and they're working and they're cutting a hole, not just a hole, but a hole big enough for a bed to fit through. And the house is packed full of people. And as they're doing this, I can only imagine that debris and stuff is falling on the people below, potentially even, even falling on top of Jesus. So there's, there's nothing secret about what they're doing while they're doing this. Everyone knows they're in there and they're like, dude, who is cutting a hole in the roof? Like Jesus is, you know, he keeps having to stop talking because he's getting hit in the head with dirt. They're not doing this in secret. Everyone in that house recognized that someone was trying to enter the roof. And what the scripture tells us is that once the hole was made, that they take great care to lower the man down into that crowd below to see that he got to Jesus. So when I read this, and I give you all that level of detail to, to hopefully you know, show you what I see when I read this, because I'm always struck at the faith of, the, of that man's friends to go to those links to get him to Jesus. Not in a couple of weeks when it's easier, but right now. We need him now, right? And the Bible speaks to their great faith. We'll, we'll get into that. And, and the paralytic, I mean, he surely also had a measure of faith, but he's completely powerless to act upon any of it. Completely powerless to act upon it because of his condition. But it's the faith of the friends to persist, even though the path probably seemed hopeless when they first got there that actually got him to Jesus. And we see Jesus take note of that also. Look at verse 5. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So in this moment, they, they, they lower him down. Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven. And there's two primary re- reactions in the crowd to these words of Jesus. The first, almost certainly confusion from most people. Right? They came from who knows how far to be near Jesus because they've heard of these miraculous things that he's doing. And here's this paralyzed guy. All of his friends go to these great links, and Jesus doesn't just heal him because of his faith. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. I I can imagine that they were taken back by that. They're looking at this thinking, man, you've been casting out demons. You've been healing leprosy. Dude, if if you would solve paralysis right now, that would be pretty cool. That would be a pretty solid resume builder to help us get to the point where we believe that you are who you say you are. But the scripture tells us because they had great faith, I think their reaction was significantly different than the one we see from the second group. And let's look at, look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So we, we see in the scripture the scribes, they are there also. So now they've joined this group of people that's following Jesus. They're interested. They're trying to figure out what's going on here. And, and they immediately meet this with skepticism in their heart. Look at verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here in, in the book of Mark, this is the first time where we, we see them show up and, and we find what, what, we, what they think is solid evidence that Jesus isn't who he says he is. They, they note this. And it doesn't say that they say this out loud. It doesn't say that they snicker to one another and talk about it quietly. It says that they say it in their heart. So they see it happen because of their vast knowledge and, and, and all of, the, all of the, the things that they've gathered through their study of religion and whatever else was going on at the time. In their heart, they meet it with skepticism and they question. And then Jesus, without hearing them audibly say this, he, he responds in a way that, that is incredible. Look at verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? What is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and take your bed and walk? So here Jesus takes the opportunity once again to demonstrate the divine authority that he's been demonstrating all along as we've been looking through these scriptures. He literally reads their minds. They, they think something and he opposes that thought and speaks to them based on the thing that they did not say, that they just said in their heart. He stops them in their tracks. Can you imagine the reaction from the others in the crowd at this point? They don't know that those guys were thinking that. They think they're on the same page that, that they're on. When they see Jesus say this, they're waiting with anticipation. What's next? Is this it? All of these emotions coming into the crowd. And, and then Jesus opposes the scribes and says, man, why, why are you questioning me in your heart, that, that takes them from absolute confusion to absolute shock in, in one statement. And he continues on, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or rise up and take your bed and go. Jesus' contention here to them is, is it easier to erase the sin of man, which Jesus knows and he wants them to know is embedded and woven into man's nature and seared into man's heart and at the root of the condition that everyone sees when they look upon him, or is it easier just to merely treat the physical symptom of the greater problem? Now, I'll pause here really quickly to go back into that statement and point out what I'm not saying is that the man was paralyzed because he sinned. That's a very important clarification because sometimes 
you will get caught up in that. If you're out there, you'll think, man, uh, maybe, maybe you believe this or maybe this has been taught to you that at some point anything that, that you're struggling with, whether it's sickness or any other thing that's going on, is, is an absolute result of your personal individual sin. But what Jesus knew that he wanted them to understand was that at the root of sickness, disease, poverty, injustice, any of that stuff that we see existing in the world is because there is sin in the world. Right, because sin entered the world. This wasn't the original setup in the garden. Sin entered and all these things came in with it and now we, we suffer in this life in some cases because of that. Right? And what Jesus was trying to do is point out that forgiveness of sin, which would then ensure right standing before the perfect judge of this man's soul, was of much greater worth than his physical healing. And for us, it's, in, it's for, of much greater worth for us. And Jesus was proclaiming this everywhere that he went. And from the reaction of the scribes, they totally missed this. And then they began to twist it and justify it to deny the authority that Jesus had. Verses 10 through 12. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So then Jesus performs that which they had all come to see. At that point, he delivers physical healing to the man, and he tells him to pick up the bed, and he does this so that they would know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. He's pressing this. This is for me. I have the authority to do these things and to Prove it, I will heal this man now. I will, I will tell him to do this. And he, Jesus is here, and we'll see it in the next passage of Scripture, equating sickness with sin. And by removing those physical symptoms from the man caused by the existence of sin in the world, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the sin that is affecting this man's life. So he heals him completely. And he doesn't just heal him, but then he commands him to demonstrate his newfound strength. He says, fold your bed up, pick it up, carry it out through this massive crowd that's jammed in here and go all the way home. It's a pretty incredible sight. To, to heal him and say, okay, sit here, rest for a minute and gather your strength, I mean, that would have been one thing. To heal him so fully in that moment that he had the strength to do everything else that Jesus commanded him to do is, is incredible. It's an incredible truth, and I think we, we miss that sometimes if we just stop at the healing. It's, it's not so much the healing of the paralysis, it's everything else that came with it. This man was made completely new, as though nothing had ever ailed him in this moment. And he picked his bed up and he carried it out. And it says that the crowd reacts by glorifying God and saying, we've never seen anything like this, and I'm guilty, guilty as is anybody about reading these passages of scripture when, the, when they're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and their reactions to Jesus. I'm so guilty of looking at that and being like, these, these guys were fools. Like, these guys were, why couldn't they see it? It was right in front of their face. Like, man, I hope, I hope I'm never like those guys. And the more I dwell on that, the more I realize I see so much of myself in the scribes in this passage. I see so much of who I am. I see so much of, of me not understanding that the work that Christ does and the forgiveness of sin is enough. I want to see it followed up by some sort of tangible element so that, that I can process it and see it and prove it and then be brought to a place of praise. But the scripture tells us Jesus heals and they immediately begin to glorify him 
in that moment. I feel like what I do, and maybe you're, you're familiar with this also in your own life, but I fall into a line of thinking where, where I just tell myself over and over again that sin is just a part of who I am, and I just have to get used to failing and leaning on the grace of God. And what, what we say about that, because that is a true statement, this is a half-truth. This is a half-truth. I mean, it is true that for me and maybe for you that the battle with sin will be ongoing until we leave this life and we're present with Christ. But we can't forget that through the death of Christ for those sins, we've been freed from them, not just from the consequence of them, but we have been freed into obedience. And that in and of itself is enough, should be enough to elicit praise from each and every one of us that understand that truth and how it applies to us because we also in that moment can't help but understand how little we deserve it, how much has been given to us, how much grace has been extended just every day waking up and understanding that we have been forgiven and, and grace is new for us. It's new for us that day. It's true for me and it's true for you. And it's something that we need to focus on so that we're glorifying God every single morning because the scriptures say that his mercies are new for us every single morning. So no matter how much I mess it up when I leave here today, because I will, absolutely, probably before I get to the house, I'll be in the truck by myself, I'll mess it up. Nobody even around to mess with me. But at the end of the day, what I know and what is sure for me because of the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is that tomorrow morning when I wake up, those mercies are going to be new again. And God never looks down and goes, you know what, this guy is, this guy is off track. Let's just, let's just pull away. Right? He never does that for us. Moving on into verses uh, 13 and 14 as the story continues. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So after this, Jesus goes out, and he's teaching again, and he comes upon Levi, who's also known as, as Matthew. He's sitting at his tax booth. And, and talk about in this guy's position, I would assume he's probably the last guy that anybody ever wants to see ever. If you have, you know, been in the United States for any period of time, you know that right now we call this tax season, right? So this is a, a fresh wound for a lot of us this morning. Uh, it's tax season, man. And here's the thing. When you go to the IRS at some point or your accountant or whatever between now and whenever the filing date is, there is literally not one answer that they can give you that is going to be good, Either way, and I know some of you think, man, I'm, you know, maybe there are some good answers. There's really not. You're either going to get a bill because they say you underpaid and, and the gangster Uncle Sam wants his cut, or you're going to get money back. And if you look into that, you'll have to deal with the reality that you overpaid, and then they gave you a percentage of what you overpaid back. So we're just going to keep the rest of this. You know, it's ours. It's not, but it, but it is. We can talk offline about my, uh, my personal struggles with taxes. And what we find out is the government, at the end of the day, is an unjust banker. And it's, it's a very, very poor savings account. There may be a few of you that have figured out how to hit zero each year when you do this. If you have, I, I would suggest as you leave your, your tax person stop and buy a Powerball ticket at the Fuel Max. Because that is, I, I've, I've, I've tried to get there and I can't. And maybe I'm just not as smart as, as some of you guys that are doing it. But what we see in, in the same vein is tax, tax collecting. Matthew is positioned by the water because he's collecting a portion of each of the fishermen's earnings for the work that they've completed that day. Right? They're coming off. They've done their work. They're tired. And then as they're coming out, they have to give him a portion of their earnings for the day. And then beyond that, he's also collecting more 
than what they rightly owed, and he's just sticking that in his own pocket. So to put it plainly, this guy was a thief and hated by most people because of it. He, he, he didn't have a whole lot of company outside of the people that were thieves with him doing the same, the same type of work. But Jesus is coming, and the crowds are following. Don't forget that. They're watching everything that he does. And he walks right up to Matthew, and he says, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He gets up from the tax booth immediately, and he follows Jesus. There was a guy that Lee and I worked with years ago when we were doing student ministry that would point to this story, and he would refer to what we see here with Matthew as acronym RIO, but rapid immediate obedience. Like immediately, the command came out and rapidly there was obedience there. And Matthew began to follow Jesus. And as the crowd saw this happen, they saw Matthew who they hated and they saw Jesus who they revered walking together. Scripture scripture continues on in verse 15 and tells us, As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So immediately from calling Matthew, Matthew beginning to follow with that rapid, immediate obedience, the scripture shifts and says, now they're reclined at Matthew's table. Matthew His dirty tax-collecting friends, Jesus, and his disciples are reclined at the table. If if I don't know you very well or we've barely met and I invite you to my house for dinner or whatever, there's going to be a certain formality to that as we get to know each other. We're probably going to pull out the good plates. We're not going to feed you on paper plates. Uh, More than likely, we're going to send our kids somewhere else because you'll never want to be our friends ever if you come over on any night when that chaos is going on. There are these things that are going to happen. I might put on a decent shirt that day that's ironed or whatever to come in and talk. And then there's the opposite of that where I have friends that I've known for years that are comfortable, and when they come to my house, half the time they don't even knock. They just come in. Or more likely, their kids come in first. And I'm like, well, they're here somewhere, I guess, because that's their kid. Like, what we see here is more the second of those examples. It was more than likely what they were doing. It was a jovial gathering. probably had some sort of a a celebratory feel. And, And the scribes, as they looked onto this, couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't understand why this was happening because in their minds, their understanding of righteousness was rooted in strict observance of the law, and they couldn't reconcile how a man who claimed to be from God could celebrate with such wicked law-breaking people. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it, and they asked. They asked the disciples, dude, why, why is he doing this? And then we see Jesus' response in verse 17 that I'll read again here. Jesus heard them ask this question and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So he tells them, look, I didn't come for those of you who would call yourself righteous. I came for those who would be called sinners. He came to save those that needed to be saved. And once again here he speaks of himself as a doctor. He speaks of himself as a physician who came for the sick so their greatest sickness could be healed and that greatest sickness was their sin. That's what he came to heal and that's what he's doing doing right here that we see in this page. And and once again, just as with the paralytic, he equates sickness with sin and then proclaims to be the one who has the authority to forgive that sin and heal that sin sickness. And the thing that I see in the scripture is that the tragedy here is that the scribes in this moment and in in many moments as we move forward don't equate themselves with the sick who Jesus said that he's come to heal. 
They don't, they don't see themselves as, as in that same group. They don't see themselves with the need for this type of forgiveness. They're, they're so wrapped up in, in a works-based righteousness that they don't even recognize the Son of God as he sits right in front of them. And it's tragic on their account. And in both of these stories that we're looking at this morning, as Jesus continually draws comparisons between sickness and sin, he holds himself up as the only cure. He holds himself up as the only hope that these sin-sick people around him have. And and spoiler alert, that's us. The same sin-sickness that Jesus is addressing here is the same one that we suffer with apart from Christ. It's the same one that, that threatens, to, threatens us with death, with, with eternal death, if we don't see Christ as the only way that we're ever going to overcome and, and grow and be healed from that sin sickness. You see, in the case of the paralytic, Jesus initially overlooks the obvious physical ailments and he heals he heals the sinfulness in his heart. And then in the case of Matthew, Jesus makes it clear he was sent to those who were sick and then demonstrates his willingness to call sinners to the great physician for healing. And this news about Jesus was amazing for those that understood that message in the moment. It, it was amazing news for them. And then it became infuriating for those who were convinced that they were already on the right path to earning their own righteousness by their own Merit. There's a famous businessman and motivational speaker named Zig Ziglar that once said the first step in solving a problem is to recognize that it exists. It was true for them then and it's true for us now. We can't solve a problem that we don't know we have. And we all have to settle into the realization that we are sick. We, are, we do suffer from this sin sickness and that Jesus is the only cure. And if we don't recognize that, we'll never really begin to understand that our troubles in this life are rooted in that sin sickness. We can't even begin to know how to resolve those troubles if we don't understand that the root of them is the sickness of sin. And like I said before, to be clear, it does not mean that because you sin, these things happen. What I'm saying is that the root of that is that sin exists, therefore there are things happening that were never the original plan for us. And the only cure for that is Christ. We, some of us struggle, we have problems in our marriage and we don't understand that those are rooted in sin. And we know they're rooted in sin because we know that God's desire for us is to be united together in one flesh with one another for his glory. Right? And the Son of Man has the authority to forgive those sins and to heal those issues and to help us tackle them. You, you'll never understand this enough that you and your spouse won't wrestle with one another because of your own preferences or your own sins or all of these things. There will constantly be this, well, constantly, in my house maybe, and I'll just speak for myself, there's oftentimes constantly this friction between my wife and I and when we finally sit down and, and talk and we boil it down, we realize that one or the other of us, it's rooted in sin. Right, or maybe it's both of us a lot of times. You guys understand what I'm trying to say when I, when I say that. And the reality is while there's, there's other tools that we utilize, there's other things that, that the world will tell us to go to, and oftentimes as, as a pastor we will, we will encourage you to use these tools also. If you don't understand the broader picture of why that's happening in the first place, you can't address it. You can't address it, you can't handle it, you can't begin to tackle it. Uh, one for me personally is the, the, the sin of, constantly becoming overcome with worry about things going on in the world around us, right? And for me, that is absolutely rooted in sin. I, I can't tell you over the last couple of years how many times I sat there and thought, man, 
this is going south, and I'm thinking about my 401K. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do in 30 years or 25 years when I'm ready to retire. What's the world going to be like for my kids? Is, you know, what, what direction do I need to take right now to try to set them up for success? And once again, while all of those worries are good because those are tools that God has given us to steward well so that we're well taken care of, at the end of the day, what I need to remember, maybe what we need to remember is that God has promised to us that better days await for those of us who are his. So regardless of the, the way the wind blows in our current culture, we anchor ourselves on this idea that God didn't leave us here to, to stumble. He didn't leave us here to be destroyed. He, he, we're here and he will one day come and get us and we will go be with him in paradise. So, so the struggles that we have here and the things we see going on around us are temporary and that is because the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And that goes with anything. We're struggling with loss, discontentment, finding your path in life, struggling to feel love, struggling to find love, struggling at work, finding, struggling at work or finding work, struggling with authority, or maybe you're in authority and you're struggling not to abuse that authority because that is a, an absolute um, temptation when you have that type, of, that type of authority you're given in certain scenarios in life. And what I want for all of us who are in those spaces this morning is that we would allow these scriptures to remind us that whether directly or indirectly, every one of those issues are rooted in the existence of sin in the world and in some cases can be products of our very own disobedience. And regardless of where you fall in any of those buckets, the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. It's right there. It's right there for us. And all it takes for us is the faith to believe and to lean into that. And, and here's the thing, like when I read, you know, particularly the, the particularly the account of the paralytic, you realize that sometimes it's not even your own faith that spurns you to action in that way. As is the case here, like I said, with the paralytic, sometimes that faith springs from the faith of friends that we have around us. Oftentimes, you'll find yourself in a scenario, maybe you don't even know what's going on, but your friends see it, and they will be faithful to drag you back to Jesus, even if they have to tear somebody's house up in order to do it. And this is why we talk so much about community here. We talk so much about getting a home group. We don't want you in a home group so that we can have these thriving, um, you know, programs that we tout across town. Trust me, the guys that work here would be, have much easier lives if we said, hey, all, all that extra stuff that y'all are having to manage and, and, and put together and, and keep under control and spend all your time on, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to come up here twice a day on Sunday and then we're going to cut everybody loose to go live their life. We'll see y'all next week. That'd be significantly easier for the, for the guys that work here. Fortunately, I don't work here, so I don't deal with a lot of that, but I know it's hard for those guys. And, and here's the reality. The reason we do that is because we believe it's important when you come in and you join membership that we put you in a group with other members, not to add you to a home group, but to give you the opportunity to build a relationship with like-minded believers that are here with you linked arms and we're, we're, we're walking toward the same goal, right? And that's because you will inevitably enter a time or find yourself in a position where those very same people that maybe you didn't even want to go join will drag you back to Jesus when things go south, when you don't even know that you need to go. It happens all the time. And that's what we see here with the paralytic. That day will come for all of us. And then sometimes it's just us, man. We just need to stand up from our tax booth and choose to follow Christ just like Matthew did. Make the decision to do that. We need to recognize that for us sometimes the sin that's in our life has us paralyzed. Just like the paralytic, we are paralyzed by the power of sin. And the only way, the only way that that paralysis will be broken is through the forgiveness of Christ at the cross. And either way, wherever you fall on that, what I want for us this morning is that we would leave with our eyes fixed on Christ. And in the words of John the Baptist, I pray that we would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.
It was true for every one of us. It's true for, for anyone, anyone at all that's, that's available and, and offered to you. So I'll close by saying this. If you, if you don't know Jesus as Savior this morning, my, my prayer for you as you sit here is that the Holy Spirit would move in your heart right now. You recognize that sin for what it is. You would know that it's there. You would recognize it, and then you would see Jesus as the only way and the only one that has the authority to forgive those sins, and that we would accept that today. I pray that you, know, that you would come to know Christ, and you would be able to understand the things that, that I said about walking in freedom, even though we feel as though sometimes we're, we're held down or, or snuffed out by the things that are going on around us. The, the greater freedom that awaits us in Christ is, is so much better than anything that we think we are losing or not gaining or maybe gaining here on earth. That's not, that's not the way that this works because new life is waiting, waiting for you. It's waiting for me. It's waiting for all of us if we'll just have the faith to believe. So I'm gonna pray for us and turn it back over to to Brendan, and, and we'll continue continue the service. Lord, we, we thank you this morning that your word is good, God, that's applicable, that, that regardless of the, the number of times that we look at it or see it or read it or study it, whatever, that, that, it's, that there's new truths to be found each time. God, we thank you that, that you do have authority over sin, God, and, and the way you chose to exercise that authority for those of us who believe is to, to forgive us to forgive us of that debt, to make us whole, to, to make us one with, with you so that we might be with you in eternity, God. I ask that we would lean on that more. God, give us the, the strength and the courage to, to understand that while the struggles of today are very real and, and they are something that, that need to be addressed, God, if we're not addressing them through you and through the power of the gospel, we're addressing them the wrong way. I, I pray this morning that, that that would be true with us as we leave. God, be with us as we go from this place and keep us safe. It's in Jesus' name we pray.